Good morning. If you open with uh, your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're in the middle of a three-part series working through Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you don't remember, Deuteronomy was a book written by Moses at the very end of his life. This is after the whole experience in Egypt. If you've seen any of the Exodus movies, the Israelites were held captive. Moses, by the power of God, leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, up to the Promised Land. The people sinned against God. They doubted whether God could actually bring them into the Promised Land. And so God sent them back around, said, fine, we're not going in this time. We're going to spend a little more time in the wilderness until all the people who were there who had rebelled would pass away and their children would get a chance to enter the land. At this time, they are preparing to enter the promised land that God promised to Abraham and to multiple times to his uh, descendants. God is finally getting ready to fulfill this promise and Moses is not going to be permitted to enter the promised land. He sins against God. He loses his patience with the Israelites, which we'll talk about in a little bit, does come up in this passage. But Moses finds out, and instead of entering the land, he is going to go up on top of a mountain. He's going to be able to see the land, but not go into it. And that's where he is going to die. As Joshua would take over and eventually lead the people of Israel into the promised land. So the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final chance to impart wisdom to the Israelites. It's his chance to say, I'm not going with you, but here's what you need to know before God brings you into the promised land. Last week, we talked about verses 1 through 14. talked about four main points that Moses commands the people of Israel to follow God. The first one was to listen to what God says. The second was to remember what God has done in the past. If you remember, we talked about Baal Peor, where the people yoked themselves to a foreign god and worshipped and served Baal instead of the one true God, and the experience in Mount Sinai. The third was to follow what he says, and the fourth was to understand that they had a special place in the life or in the, in the plan of Yahweh, the one true God. We're going to move on from there, beginning in verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Be extremely careful for your own good, because you did not see any forum on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Do uh, not to act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, male or female form, or the form of any beast on the earth. Any winged creature that flies in the sky, any creature that crawls on the ground, or any fish in the waters under the earth. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the array of heaven, do not be led astray to bow down and worship them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. But the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. The Lord was angry with me on your account. He swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I won't be crossing the Jordan because I am going to die in this land. But you are about to cross over and take possession of this good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
When you have children and grandchildren and have been in the land a long time, and if you act corruptly, make an idol in the form of anything and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that you will quickly perish from the land you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but you will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. But from there you will search for the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, you will return to the Lord your God in later days and obey him. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them by oath, because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning. We desire to hear from you. We desire for your word to speak to us in a special way. As we examine the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, that you would open our eyes to what the Israelites were going through, what Moses was going through, the message that Moses has for the Israelites, and how it applies to us, Father, what it means for us now. Father, speak to us this morning through your word and through your Holy Spirit. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we examine this part of, the, of chapter 4, we're going to reveal, last week we had four main points. Here it's going to be three main points. It's going to be really easy, very, very simple, okay? The first point that we learn in Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 15, there is one God. This is going to be an important point for the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, the most famous verse in Deuteronomy is going to come in just a couple chapters, and it was probably the most most important verse in the Jewish religion. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. They had a special name for it called the Shema. In fact, if you go to Jewish communities, especially in Israel, they actually have these little uh, lockets that they put on doors. It's a little scroll, and it actually has this verse in it. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. See, Moses, when he's talking to the Israelites, he knows that the greatest danger that they face going into the promised land is that they're going to forget God. They're going to be surrounded by a multitude of other gods. And instead of worshiping the one true God who brought them out of Egypt, they're going to turn aside and worship someone else. In fact, they've already done it, if you remember the story of Mount Sinai. No sooner did they get through the Red Sea, uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. By the time he comes down, they've already fashioned an idol. They took all the gold that they left Egypt with, they created a golden calf, and they've started bow down, bowing down to worship it. It's actually almost ironic if it wasn't horrific. The fact that God has brought them out with a mighty hand, done amazing things that have never been seen before, and they give up and they say, you know what? We'll make a golden calf, we'll put him on a pedestal, and they'll say, behold, the God who brought you out of Egypt. We don't want this big, scary God on a dark mountain who is, who is this radiating power. We'd rather have this God that we can control. Look at verse 15. Be extremely careful for your own good, because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire, not to act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, a male or female form, or the form of any beast on the earth, any winged creature that flies in the sky, any creature that crawls on the ground, or any fish in the waters under the earth. 
When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the array of heaven, do not be led astray to bow down and worship them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. Since don't be surprised, when you go into this new land, you're going to be tempted to compromise the one true God and to create something that's a little easier for you to understand. That's a little more comfortable. Moses, in the, one of the last things he's going to get to say to all of the Israelites, his message to them is going to be, remember, there is only one God. In fact, that's probably one of the most controversial topics that we have in our culture, and we have a lot of controversial topics. People don't mind us talking about God, especially, you know, I'm from New England, okay? New England has been heavily hit by the New Age movement, okay? They're actually very non-judgmental. I know we live in the area of Southern hospitality, and you think all Yankees are mean, okay? Spoiler alert, Yankees aren't mean, they just don't like you, okay? <laughs> Sorry. That, that's not really true, okay? What Yankees are is they're very easygoing, but they're not into other people's business. They're fine with you believing whatever you want to believe. What they don't like is you telling them what they should believe. When you say, oh, by the way, here's how you should act. Here's the way that you should believe. All of a sudden, especially from New England and Maine, they kick back. Okay, we used to host, um, I'm not trying to make this a north-south thing. Let's see if we can start the Civil War again this morning, you know? That's not really the rabbit trail that I wanted to go on, okay? But it's true. Moses is warning them, he's saying, you are going to go into these nations, and you're going to be tempted to sacrifice the message of the one true God, and you'll be tempted to worship something that is more comfortable, what is that? In these cultures, it's something made with your own hands. It is a nice, tame God that you can put on a pedestal that doesn't bother you when you don't want him or her to, and then come to him and cry out and say, I'm having a hard time, will you please save me, but never demands anything from you. That's Moses' last chance, last thing that he wants to say to them is, remember Israel, there is only one. And so you go to some of these cultures, and they say, especially like Hindu religion, Buddhist religion, and they say, here are these lists of gods, and you want to know the irony, especially in the modern age? You know, the Hindu religion, they, they kind of worship, though they say they worship is 330 million gods. Okay? That's actually what their scriptures say. There's 330 million gods. Okay? In their scripture, there are 33 listed but in modern days, they keep on adding. In fact, someone on the internet was trying to collect all the names, and he got to like 150, which they think is probably the largest. You want to know whose name is on that list? Jesus. See, people don't have a problem with worshiping Jesus. They don't have a problem with acknowledging God unless you say he's the only one. Unless you say, well, hold on, no, 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 you, that's fine. We can add him to our collection of gods. But to say that all of these gods are false and that's the one true God, that's where people kick back. And Moses is warning them, you're going to go into this land and you're going to face these people who worship all of these false gods and they won't have a problem adding your God to the list. But when you go in there and say, nope, this is the one true God, they're going to have a problem with it, and you are going to be faced with the choice of whether you are going to compromise what you believe. Will you stay true to the one true God, or will you worship these idols, these false gods? Isaiah, 
actually has a lot to say about that. He has this whole passage where he talks about the importance of worshiping the one true God versus idols. If you look at Isaiah 44, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he almost uses a sense of irony to it. It's almost a joke. Look at Isaiah 44. We're going to be beginning in verse 12. He says, the iron worker labors over the coals, shapes the idol with hammers, and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry, and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water, and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human likeness, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. It serves as fuel for man. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire, and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, Save me, for you are my god. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their minds so that they cannot understand. No one reflects. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. I will make something detestable with the rest of it. And I will bow down to a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, isn't there a lie in my right hand? He's almost being ironic. This person who is so weak, Okay, I don't know about you guys, I have no artistic skill, okay? I can't draw a stick figure, okay? But these people, they take their artistic skill, and they take their skills that God has given them, they take their qualities. There are some people who are expert craftsmen in here. I know several people in here work with wood or some other material, and they can make something beautiful, okay? The fact that I have no artistic skill actually means that I appreciate it. Okay, when someone can take a block of wood and they spend the time and the energy and they map it out just right and they spend, depending on the piece, you know, it might be hours, it might be days, it might be months working on these things to make something that is incredibly beautiful. The problem is that beauty is contained in a block of wood. It is perishable. There's no amount of artistic skill that can take that and put life into it. And yet these people are, are limited by their own physical being. It says they, they don't drink and they faint. They work hard and they grow hungry. These mortal beings are going to craft all these things. They're going to take this wood and they're going to build a fire with it to warm themselves. And they're going to build something with it so they can go cook food with it. And they're going to take the remainder of it and they're going to make a god out of it. Do you see how futile that is? That's the message Isaiah is trying to convey. Do you realize what these people are saying? The fact that I am so limited in my knowledge, so limited in my skill, so limited in my craftsmanship, that I can make a God to save me? It's a ridiculous concept, and Isaiah wants us to know that. And yet it is so tempting for us. 
Because these Israelites, they saw the one true God. They had the experience that few of us will ever experience this side of heaven, where they stood at the foot of the mountain. They received a command from Moses saying, if even an animal touches this mountain, it will die. And the cloud descends on Mount Sinai. If your version says Horeb, I probably should explain that last time. Same thing, different translation. Okay, And so they go to this mountain and they see the cloud of God descend and they see lightning and they, see th- and they hear thunder and they see fire come down on it and they hear a voice speak that talks to them and gives them the commands of the one true God and the people instead of bowing in worship say, please don't let that happen again. Do you realize that this, you know, we come to church and this is the right place to say we worship an all-powerful, almighty, all-amazing God who has done all these amazing things when the truth is we're actually more comfortable if we have a God that we can control. The idea of an all-powerful God that has a plan for us, yeah, we find that liberating a lot of times. Sometimes we also find that troubling. The fact that there's a God who has a plan that's different from us. Moses' message to the Israelites is, this God brought you out of Egypt by a mighty hand. Why would you want to turn away from that and worship this piece of wood or this piece of gold or this piece of precious metals? Do you understand how futile that is to cry out to this object that you made, save me, for you are my God. In fact, the passage in Isaiah ends. These people are just completely lost. They hold up this idol, and they have no ability to say, is not this thing in my hand a lie? See, we ridicule it, because most of us don't. You know, I've never had somebody bring up an idol and put it on the church altar before. Thanks, Belinda. We don't normally turn to stuff like that. We don't normally set up this altar or this shrine to something. You know, we don't, if this was, you know, India or something like that, we probably shouldn't be putting, doing that. But we don't have that issue here. We don't turn to these physical things and say, you are my God. But instead, we fill our lives with these other things. See, when we say, you know, we are your God, what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, what that meant for the people of Israel is it meant some level of meaning and purpose in our lives. We don't turn to this piece of wood and say, save me. We do turn to this piece of wood and say, you bring meaning to my life. We turn to this physical thing in our lives and say, you give my life purpose. You give my life purpose meaning. You make my life worthwhile. We cry out with Tom Cruise, you complete me. You complete me. It's a joke because it's a movie, but that's what we're looking for. We're looking for something in our lives that gives us meaning and purpose, that makes our lives worth living. And, you know, when I was in the military, I, I was talking to somebody. I came back from Afghanistan, and people, like, were needing counseling left and right. They were coming back seriously messed up from our time at, we call it H. Kyatt's, the airport during the Afghanistan withdrawal. And these people came back, and they had been faced with some terrible things, and they came back, and, and they said, you know what? The stuff that normally gave me meaning in my life doesn't do it anymore. The stuff that normally gave me satisfaction doesn't do it anymore. And so they turned, what do they turn to? Usually alcohol. Well, if you don't know, alcohol doesn't bring meaning to your life. If anything, it'll take it away. I'm not the alcohol bad pastor, but I am the alcohol is not going to give you what you're missing. Alcohol is no amount. And so what they, they don't understand that. You know what they think they need? Alcohol's not working. You know what they turn to? 
usually more alcohol. And then more alcohol. And then they turn to something harder, usually. Sometimes they turn to drugs. Some of them turn to affairs or sexual immorality. And eventually they come to the point where none of these things bring meaning to their life. And that is where suicidal ideation comes from. I've decided that there is officially nothing in my life that gives my life purpose and meaning. That is the logical outcome of following idols, whether physical, metal, wood, gold, or just that emotional thing that I want to bring meaning to my life. Most of us don't turn to that kind of stuff. It's like, well, I don't drink alcohol. I don't do drugs. There's something in your life that brings you meaning. It might be sports. It might be your grades. It might be your job. It might be your bank account. It might be your family. I love my family. I love my job. I love my church. It doesn't bring meaning to my life. It's a job. I love my family more than anything in this world. But that is not where my purpose and my meaning come from. It only comes through the one true God. He has blessed me in many other ways, but it only comes through the one true God. Moses' message is, Israelites, you're about to go into this land. You're going to be so tempted to turn aside and to worship these other things, these things that are tame. One of my favorite passages in all of literature comes out of Chronicles or Narnia, and I know it's kind of a cheap pastor illustration, but there's a reason for that. It's because it's good, okay? And if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, and if you don't know, the Chronicles of Narnia is a story about Christ, Okay, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, a theologian, and Aslan was a personification of Christ. And at the very beginning, no matter anybody who even mentions the name Aslan, it sends shivers up their spine. People get scared. Sometimes it's a good kind of scared. Sometimes it's a bad kind of scared, depending on what side you fall on. And at one point, they're talking to somebody about Aslan, and they say, Aslan's a lion? Is he safe? And... The people laugh and they say, no, he's not safe. He's a lion, crazy. Lions aren't safe. But you don't need to worry about that. You know why? Because he's good. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> because he's good. We can turn this into interactive. That's awesome. Because he's good. No, he's not safe. You want to know something? The God you worship is not safe. He's not something you can put on your pedestal and come to him when you need it. He's not some Santa Claus that you just put, give him your wish list and wait for him to bring it to you. God, all throughout scriptures, is never, ever, ever safe. In fact, we mentioned that in scripture. Our God is a jealous God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in the book of Proverbs. And so when we go to God, we don't go to God. They used to have these t-shirts out. And I was a youth minister, and we had one of our youth come, and it said, Jesus is my homeboy. Okay? I get it, okay? You know, I am a friend of God, is what they said about Abraham. There's an element where we go to God and we cry out and we say, Abba, Father. It is literally saying, Daddy, okay? So there is the side where God is our Daddy. God is the Father to the fatherless. God is the one that we can cry out to, who, who uh, cries out for us as a chicken, as a mother hen over her chicks, okay? Those are all scriptural versions of God, and that is 100% true, but sometimes we wrap up in the, the little teddy bear God so much that we forget that our God is an all-consuming fire, that our God is a jealous God, and so we go to God and we cry out to him as, the, as Jesus told in the parable about the two people who cried out to God in prayer, and we cry out with him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I don't want some idol that's going to sit on my shelf. 
I don't want some feel-good God who's going to give me the warm and fuzzies. Okay, I get warm and fuzzies worshiping Jesus. There are times that I cry out to God, and I'm just so grateful for his mercy and for his love, but I also recognize that there's a God who created everything, every animal, the deep, deepest parts of the ocean that we haven't even explored yet, the furthest reaches of space. And so we see the one true God, not as some little thing that we stick up on there. You can have that if you want. It doesn't satisfy. You see, the one true God who created all things. You look at Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah Christ says, The one who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and makes its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. The psalmist cries out, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? When I think about the one true God, you know what I feel? Small. I feel small. I feel so insignificant. Which is why it's so important, because Moses doesn't end there. He doesn't leave with saying, oh, by the way, there's this almighty God that you can never measure up to that really has no business wasting his time on a puny, insignificant creature like me. He takes it one step further. He responds to that with what? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, but, verse 20, but the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. This almighty God who created all things, things visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, the furthest heavens, the stars that you don't even know exist, the galaxies that you can't fathom, the things on the earth and inside of you that you don't even fully understand, the God who created all of that stuff, he chose you. That's exciting. As Israelites, he chose you. We're not going to focus too long on that because that's going to be the primary message of next week. Moses is going to circle back to that. But he wants them to know that the almighty God who created all things, he chose you. He chose you to follow him. He chose you to be his chosen people. The Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. We're going to circle back to that, especially next week. But that is an important point in light of what we've been talking about. Israelites, what I'm going to tell you, you're going to need to know two things. One, there is one God. There's no others. There's none like him. He created all things. In him, all things hold together. It's talking about Jesus. That applies to God. Okay, that passage in the New Testament. He created everything, whether you know about them or not. He chose you to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. So what? So God, there's only one God. That one God, he chose you to be his people. What's the third point we're talking about? The message Moses has for the Israelites is, are you going to choose him? God has chosen you. He has a plan for you. He's called you out of Egypt, but you need to know that a time is coming where you're going to have to choose whether you're going to follow the way of these idols and these false gods or whether you're going to stay true to the one true God. So what's he saying? Verse 25. Sorry, verse 21. The Lord was angry with me on your account. By the way, this is the third time that Moses mentioned the fact that uh, 
God was angry with him and was not going to let him go. He mentions it three times throughout Scripture. You know what he says every time? The Lord was angry with me because of you. Okay? I think there's a little bit of a thorn there. I want you to know that I'm in trouble, but it's your fault. Okay? The Lord was angry with me on your account. He swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I won't be crossing the Jordan because I am going to die in this land, but you are about to cross over and take possession of this good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You know, that is one of the greatest criticisms of God. Okay? There's several places in, the, places in the Bible that refer to God as a jealous God. You can find this on TV shows with the hardcore atheists who are, you know, pronouncing against Christianity. Why would you want to worship a jealous God? You know, I think jealousy is really underrated. If, seriously. Okay? Because when we talk about Scripture, when we talk about God's relationship to his people. Okay? I sit down with, I, I've done so much marital counseling with the military, and I've heard some horror stories about marriages. I've had the couples who, you know, one of them cheats, so the other one revenge cheats, okay? I've had the ones who, you know, one person wants the relationship to work and the other one doesn't, or I, I've also had the one where a person cheats and is being blackmailed by the person they cheated with. I've heard some horrific stories, okay? Do you understand the role of jealousy in a relationship? No, it gets a bad rep because we have an idea of, you know, the jealous husband or the jealous wife means, you know, I want to know where they are every point of every day, okay? You know what the opposite is? To have someone who is not jealous for their spouse? Oh, you cheated? Huh. There's no level there. There's no emotional attachment there. When you love someone, you care about them. You are jealous for them. Okay? I don't want my, life to, my wife to be with another man. I hope she doesn't want me to be with another woman. If, if we say, nope, we're fine, it's called an open marriage, they exist, it's not the ideal. That is not the way that God created us. He created us to have an intimate relationship that we shouldn't want that person to have with other people. I'm not justifying people like, I don't want you to have friends besides me. Okay? This concept has been corrupted and polluted by sinful people wanting to do sinful things. But listen to what I'm saying. You should have a passion for your husband or wife. You should want that unique relationship with them. You should have that with your children to a point. At some point, yes, they need to get out and you know, spread their wings. But there should be a level of jealousy there. Because jealousy in those situations means love. It's because you care about them. When I don't want to spend time with my kids, and I don't care where they are. When I don't want to spend time with my wife, I don't care where she is or who she's with. That's not the ideal. That's not a godly marriage. There should be some level of jealousy. And so when it says that God is a jealous God, what that means is his people, he does not look back and be like, oh, you want to worship these other gods. Oh, well. That's not the way it works. God says, I have called you out as my people. You're my own. I have poured out everything for you. Eventually, you fast forward to Christ, and he says, I sent my son to die on the cross so you could be forgiven. No, I'm not okay with you worshiping another god. No, I'm not okay with you running off and doing that. In fact, over and over in Scripture, you know the relationship that that says? It calls it a relationship with a prostitute. 
when you have this relationship with God and then you run after false gods, when you serve these other created beings, God considers that marital infidelity against him. And so God is a jealous God, and he's proud of that. He wants us to know that, and you should be happy that he is, because it is his jealousy that spawned him sending his son to die on the cross so you could be forgiven, so you could be with him for all eternity. You know what emotion spawned that? Love and jealousy. I will not leave them in the hands of their sin. I will not leave them captives. I will give up everything so they can be with me. For the Lord your God, he is a jealous God. When you have children and grandchildren and have been in the land a long time, and if you act corruptly, make an idol in the form of anything, and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that you will quickly perish from the land you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but you will certainly be destroyed. Moses says, you're about to go to the promised land. God is finally going to give it to you. You know what I want for you? For you to keep it. You know how you keep it? You stay true to the one true God who has given it to you. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. Okay, think about that for a second. What are they being punished for? Worshiping man-made gods that cannot hear, eat, drink, or smell. What is the result of their punishment? What is their actual punishment? They're going to be in a place where they can worship the gods who have made, they've made with their hands who cannot eat, drink, hear, or smell. God says, you really want to worship them? Here you go. Have at it. But notice, you will not do it in my promised land. It is either me or your false gods that you can worship and sit on your shelf and go back. You will not do it in my promised land, but you will be punished. You'll be expelled from the land. The survivors yeah, they're going to go into this foreign land and they're going to worship these false gods. I'm going to give you over to exactly what you've asked for. It's amazing how often God does that. You know, it's, an, again, old classic, you know, um, ooh, I lost it. What's his name? Garth Brooks song. Where it says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. You ever think about all the stuff that you've asked God for? And how many of them you look back on now and say, I'm so glad God didn't give that to me. I'm very grateful God does not answer every one of my prayers with a yes. That would be according to my plan. It's not according to his, and I am so grateful. God says, you want to worship these idols? Here you go. But these people, they're going to be cast out of the promised land. They're going to be allowed to worship those idols. And what's going to happen? You know what happens when we finally do get what we want? We realize maybe that wasn't the best thing for us to begin with. And he tells us long before any of this happened, this is going to happen exactly that way. The people are going to go in the promised land. They're going to worship their idols. They're going to face expulsion. They're going to be cast out of the land. Their survivors are going to worship these false gods. And then what's going to happen? Remember, before any of that actually happens physically, God, through Moses, tells the Israelites, this is how it's going to go. You're going to end up there. You're going to worship these false gods. But then what? Verse 29. But from there you will search for the Lord your God. From there you will search. You're going to be cast out. You're going to be left away from the one true God. 
You're going to be left alone with your idols. You're going to cry out, you are my God, will you save me? And they won't respond. But then, when all hope seems lost, you will cry out to the one true God. And how will he respond? From there, you will search for the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have happened to you, you will return to the Lord your God in later days and obey him. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them by oath, because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. I'm so grateful that the God that I worship is not only a jealous God, he's also a compassionate God. The God who created everything in the entire world cares about tiny little Brian and every single one of you here. He has a plan for your life, and as long as you follow him, he does have a plan for you. I won't make a promise that every single thing will go easy. Everything's going to be smooth. You know, you're going to win the lottery and never have to worry about a bill again. That's not in the Bible. But whatever you do go through, you'll find that God is there with you. When you sacrifice that and you turn aside to these own things to give your life meaning and purpose, you'll find hopelessness and despair. But from that point, you cry out to God, and what does he promise? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and with all your soul. That's a beautiful message for sinful people. I'm so grateful that no matter how often or how many times I fall apart, because I do, I am far from perfect. And I cry out from God every time, and I say, God, I have screwed up again. Will you please forgive me? And I quote this almost every sermon. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The Lord you, God, is not only an all-powerful, almighty, incredible God who created all things, seen and unseen, the furthest corners of space that you can't even comprehend or fathom, that God cares about you. He has called you into a relationship with himself. And when you fall short, because you will, he's still there waiting. You cry out to him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he answers every single time. This time we're going to go into a time of invitation. It is highly unlikely that you have an altar at your home with an idol. It could happen. Maybe you do. More likely you have something in your life that has taken the place of God. Something that brings your life meaning and purpose other than the one true God. There are many things that you can turn to for happiness, okay? There are things that I enjoy. I would even say that I love in my life, okay? I love certain sports. I have certain hobbies that I love. More more than that, I love my family. I love my children. I love my pets. I love this church. I really do. But if any of that takes the place of God in my life, that has become an idol, And what you find out every single time is that when you turn to those things to bring meaning in your life, they fall short. They don't bring you meaning. They don't bring you purpose. They don't bring you peace when you go through hard times. There's only one place that you find that. That's in the one true God. Maybe you've turned aside to something else, physical or emotional, spiritual, something else. Maybe that's the conversation that you need to have with God this morning, where you come to him and say, God, I have let this have the most important spot in my life. 
I've messed up. I found out the hard way that that doesn't bring meaning and purpose. I want to find it only in you. Maybe God is laying something else on your heart. Maybe you have never accepted him into your life before. This is a great time for it. There's nothing like serving the one true God. We talk about God being a, a jealous God. It's awesome being the child of a jealous God. It is so incredible finding that peace and hope in there. So I hope none of the phrases I've used have turned you off because it's, it's an incredible blessing. And if you have never accepted Christ in your life, let me just tell you, you're missing out. It's so important, best decision you will ever make. Maybe God is telling, laying on your heart this morning that you either need to join the church or be baptized. If that's what God is telling you this morning, my prayer is that you would come forward, that you would talk to me, and we can talk through it. If it's something, I just need to, you know, rededicate my life to Christ, or I need to cast something out of my life, you can do that at your pew, but if you need someone to pray with, I'm going to be right up here. Whatever God is laying on your heart this morning, my prayer for you is that you would do business with him. That you cry out to him and say, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? How can I grow closer to you? I want a closer walk with the one true God who sent his son to die on the cross so that I could be forgiven, so that I could have a relationship with him. I want a God that loves me that fiercely. Please join me in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning grateful for your word, for this uh, chance that we have to worship you. We thank you for this congregation as we gather together uh, as brothers and sisters to worship the one true God, to sing praise to your name because you are so worthy. You are amazing. We just lose the words when we try to describe how awesome you are, how merciful and compassionate you have been to us. We thank you that the God of the entire universe knows me by name, has a plan for my life, has called me his child, Father. And that no matter how many times I screw up, no matter how many times I spit in the face of God and turn aside to my own things, my own wants and wishes, that you always call me back. That you still have a plan, that you are a compassionate God who pours out mercy when we cry for it, Father. Lord, we ask that our prayer for you today would be, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, we pray for every person in this congregation this morning that you would continue to move in this place in a powerful, mighty name, that people would see you at work in their lives, that they would cry out to you and ask your blessing upon every relationship, upon every circumstance that they find themselves in, that you would work in an awesome way that we could reach out to our community and the areas surrounding us. Move in this place, Father. Let us leave knowing that you have done something awesome today. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.